This year, a new book looks at 12-step outcomes. It's called, If You Work It, It Works, The Science Behind 12-Step Recovery by psychologist and award-winning author, Joe Nowinski. It is a jargon-free look at not if, but how, 12-step programs help alcoholics and addicts. I read it, I interviewed Dr. Nowinski, and I'll share our conversation with you shortly. Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step recovery now with less dogma and more bite. Both Nowinski and Lance Dotis squared off in The Fix. Did you read that online article? Nowinski plays advocate and Dotis plays critic of AA modality. It's an interesting read, and someone else was having their say in The Atlantic. Gabrielle Glasser wrote a 2015 feature for The Atlantic called The Irrationality of Alcoholics Anonymous. While we're focusing on Joe Nowinski's book, let's look at this fist-pumping and drum-beating from the other side of the debate. Recently, in The Atlantic, Glasser talks about her passion for her side of the story. I spent three years researching a book about women in alcohol, her best-kept secret, Why Women Drink and How They Can Regain Control, published in 2013. During that time, I encountered disbelief from doctors and psychiatrists every time I mentioned that the Alcoholics Anonymous success rate appears to hover in the single digits. We've grown so accustomed to testimonials from those who say AA saved their life that we take the program's efficacy as an article of faith. Rarely do we hear from those for whom 12-step treatment doesn't work. She goes on to say, in 2006, the Cochrane Collaboration, a healthcare research group, reviewed studies going back to the 1960s and found that no experimental studies unequivocally demonstrate the effectiveness of AA or 12-step approaches for reducing alcohol dependence and problems. When my book came out, Dozens of Alcoholics Anonymous members said that because I was challenging AA's claim to a 75% success rate, I would hurt or even kill people by discouraging attendance at meetings. A few insisted that I must be an alcoholic in denial. But most of the people I hear from were desperate to tell me about their experience in the American treatment industry. Hold on a minute now. AA doesn't make a 75% success claim per se. I, I support the author in her resistance to any dogmatic assertion about the sacredness of the 12 steps. I think the anecdotal accounts of AA's first textbook was not intended to be construed as scientific data. We as a society keep no records and conduct no scientific studies. There is, however, some basis for the numbers posted in the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, as anecdotal as it might be. There are 28 stories in the back of the first big book. These were samples, and yes, maybe hand-picked samples, of the 40 to 100 members gathering together before there was a textbook or 12 steps. Everyone who stayed sober took advantage of fellowship, mutual aid, in some cases, different variations of what was in a six-step program or six-step programs. No one had a lot of sobriety. Everyone who wrote those 28 stories is now deceased. Here's how the stories end and the stats pan out. Of those big book story authors, 14 of the 28 never drank again after they penned the story. That's 50% success. Seven died as drinkers. And seven more drank after Alcoholics Anonymous, the book, was written, but returned to AA and died sober. So there's your 75% anecdotal, as it may seem, rate. Half of the stories, uninterrupted sobriety, another quarter eventually make it. 25% fail, or AA failed them. 
or maybe they weren't a good match. The Atlantic article continues, the debate over the efficacy of 12-step programs has been quietly bubbling for decades among addiction specialists, but it's taken on a new urgency with the passing of the Affordable Care Act, which requires all insurers at state Medicare programs to pay for alcohol and substance abuse treatment, extending coverage for 32 million Americans who did not previously had it, and provides a higher level of coverage for an additional 30 million. Now, the United States, she says, already spends about $35 billion a year on alcohol and substance abuse treatment. I can't even picture that money in a room. Yet, uh, heavy drinking causes 88,000 deaths a year, including deaths from car accidents and disease linked to alcohol. It also costs the country hundreds of billions of dollars in expenses related to health care, criminal justice, motor vehicle crashes, and lost work productivity, according to the CDC. With the Affordable Care Act's expansion of coverage, it is time to ask some important questions. Which treatments should we be willing to pay for? Have they proven effective? Okay, those are good points. Pay for? Wait a minute. No one pays for 12-step help other than the user pay system of passing the hat. I don't think Obamacare is paying for that. <laughs> Not a single Obamacare dollar will ever go to AA. I'm an example of someone who's never been to treatment. I'd seen doctors and social workers before I got clean and sober, and I've been back from time to time since. Some of us will have a naltrexone or antabuse or SSRI chaser with our recovery regimen today, and some of us just change our behavior. But 12-step recovery is hardly a health care cost that can be pinned to 12-step programs. I, I, I think, and I know, there is a widespread habit of recommending participation in AA-like programs after detox or treatment programs. Some of the treatment programs, of course, focus on indoctrinating this uh, 12-step modality. And that costs money, but I, I don't know that you can blame that on AA. And why is that? Is there a lack of imagination in aftercare? Is it because doctors and treatment program managers have had the spell of AA Kool-Aid uh, blinding them to the error of their ways? Well, it depends who you ask. Our own gut feeling about our own observations, educated but hardly scientific, might inform us of an opinion on that. Beyond 12-step rooms, I've been to uh, group and individual care. You might argue these are concurrent disorders, if you like that language, uh, or if you like the addiction of uh, brain disease model, which uh, is a metaphor to me. You know, if you like that term, that's fine. My experience includes cognitive behavioral therapy, transactional analysis, marriage counseling, a variety of short-term situational disorders that I've sought help for. Sometimes reading a book was sufficient, sometimes a 12-step meeting. Where, while I've never relapsed into substance addiction, I have had some run-ins with excessive behavioral disorders and mood disorders. AA isn't the only 12-step room where I can identify with the problem or solution. Going back one last time to the uh, Glaser article in The Atlantic, she says, Alcoholics Anonymous was established in 1935 when knowledge of the brain was at its infancy. It offers a single path to recovery, lifelong abstinence from alcohol. The program instructs members to surrender their ego except that they are powerless over booze, make amends to those they've wronged, and pray. Now, setting aside the fact that some pray, some don't, some work step eight and nine, some don't, it's a small but worthy point that the literature does not say that we admitted that we are powerless, as she says. We say that we were powerless, past tense. While I identify as an alcoholic, I don't feel powerless. 
I'm not cured of alcoholism, but I'm not a slave to booze. Am I meeting dependent? Have I been trained to learned helplessness, as some like to put it? I am dependent on regular exercise to maintain physical health. I'm dependent on reading and communication to maintain my cognitive functions. Many of us take daily medicines for diabetes, HIV, mental or physical disorders. Is this learned helplessness? Not by my understanding of the phrase. AA membership is not a membership in a fellowship of uniformity. Some pray, some don't. Some feel dependent on meetings, others don't. Some work the steps, including making amends, as Glazer puts it, and but not everyone does. Look, I know some AA members that are like sports fans. Their teams can do no wrong. It's uh, Their team's the best, and they don't want to hear any criticism. And I would come to Glaser's defense if she was shit upon for challenging a one-size-fits-all approach, and that being AA, for any drinking disorder. But it's simplistic to talk about AA, either pro or con, as speaking of AA as having one solution, one consciousness, or of itself the fellowship and the program being a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. What Glasser and I would agree on is that AA is not a one-size-fits-all modality, and that not all heavy drinkers are alcoholics. Of heavy drinkers, 20% moderate their behavior when it becomes a problem and abstain or lower their booze intake. Not everyone who becomes a town drunk is a hopeless addict. Here's a story that I heard in AA meetings that brings this point home. The woman I heard speak was sober for years, and she tells about her and a drinking buddy, and the tragic and funny stories that ended with torn leggings, smeared makeup, and wigs hanging on one side or the other of their head. One morning, the storyteller wakes and feels remorse. In her agony, she hears her friend in the kitchen frying eggs and bacon. I, I don't remember either's name, but I'll call the friend Hazel. So this future AA member goes into the kitchen and confides in Hazel. She tells Hazel how ashamed she feels, how she doesn't know who she really is, how she often plans only to drink a little but exceeds her own self-imposed limits. She tells Hazel about dread, terror, regret, and crippling fear that only booze can wash away. She expects Hazel to relate. After all, they've been drinking buddies for years. Hazel waits for the story to end and said plainly, I've no idea what you're talking about. Hazel was a heavy drinker, not an alcoholic. These two women would look the same to us, their antics, the impact booze had on them. But what was going on for them emotionally and psychologically was way different for each of them. Not every alcoholic is a heavy drinker. Not every heavy drinker is an alcoholic. The Atlantic article attacks the Project March study, which we'll be discussing later with Joe Nowinski, because it offers no control group. The article leans on Lance Dotis and his book The Sober Truth as a learned authority. In a previous show, episode 4, which I called 50 Years of AA Critics and Cynics, Facts and Bullshit, we might have picked on Dotis a little and the irrationality of measuring AA and calling it science. Dotis doesn't see the Moose study as scientifically sound either. We'll hear from Dr. Joe Nowinski on all of these studies later. Dotis does say about AA, which most of us would agree with, that when people do attend AA often or regularly, especially when they become emotionally invested in the system, AA involvement, as opposed to AA attendance, as the literature describes, they do well. Attending self-help programs, per se, is not helpful, but the active involvement seems to make a difference. He rightfully laments the press and lay people like me for a tendency towards confusing correlation with controlled science. We humans do love our patterns. Nowinski's book looks at a number of studies that have been done over time. Here's an example of the type of studies 
and the results that can be observed. At the Alcohol Research Group at the University of California, Dr. Leanne Cascadas recruited a little over 100 women, 200 men, and checked in with them at one year, three year, and five years from their first stint in treatment. Some declined AA involvement, and some opted in. Of those who opted in, there were low, medium, and high levels of involvement. Low involvement meant uh, only going to AA in the first year. Medium meant staying with AA, an average of 60 meetings a year. High involvement would mean 200 meetings each year. There's a fourth category of involvement, which is called declining AA involvement. And these people would be highly involved for the first year and wane to six meetings a year by the fifth year of the study. So the low involvement candidates were 43% abstinent at one, three, and five years out from their original treatment. High involvement candidates doubled their results to 86% success rate in the first year. And by year five, some of those had fallen off, so 79% after five years. The participants in AA as opposed to the observers. If Your Work It at Works by Joe Nowinski is easy for me to buy into because it corroborates what seems to be true for the portions of five different decades I've been in the rooms from the 70s until now. And some of those decades, I've been more involved in AA than other decades. Child-rearing, career, these kind of things have taken me away from the rooms at times. I believe that people that get invested in AA do better than those who come as observers. Come 20 minutes early, stay 20 minutes late, start doing some social things with your new recovery friends. I call these the 2020 people, or I stole that term from someone else. Make contact by phone. Get involved in running one of the meetings you go to. Nowinski looks at getting and being a sponsor. The spiritual side of AA, although he himself comes from a CBT disposition, he's not a higher power kind of guy. He doesn't prefer AA and NA over SMART or SOS or any of the secular programs. The study isn't about the 12 steps themselves, although engagement with 12-step fellowships often means subscribing to and committing to the program that they're based around. A note about the interview to follow. The sound is poor. Please bear with me. I recorded the chat over Skype and at the time of the discussion, I could make out what he was saying fine, but it took a little editing to make it palatable as a broadcast. Treat it like a, an old nostalgic uh, recording of uh, the King of England or something. <laughs> if you have a hard time following along, use the transcript, which is available on rebelliondogspublishing.com. It's worth the effort. Joe Nowinski is knowledgeable, forthright, and demonstrates a sincere investment in us lowly addicts and alcoholics. Here we go, as Joe Nowinski takes some time to talk from his home in Connecticut. Now, Joe Nowinski has authored books on addiction, mental health, grief, teen life, and relationships. Joe Nowinski is a clinical psychologist who recently retired as supervising psychologist at the University of Connecticut Health Center. He also held the position as assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of California. Here we go. Dr. Nowinski, thanks for being with us. Now, I just got to get my skeptical glasses on here just for a second and, and ask you about the integrity of the data. I'll give you an example. You've got one study where Dr. Leanne Cascadas from the University of California has 349 men and women from 10 different treatment centers, and researchers ask, in the last 30 days, have you had a drink? And then they keep asking this question through different intervals. Some of these studies go on five years or more, which is great. But any of us who know a collection of 349 alcoholics, you'll have some with rigorous honesty, some that are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Is this measured against interviewing the families, blood and urine tests, or any other yeah. way of collecting the data? Yeah, many studies do use urine tests and collateral information. But you know what's interesting? That there's actually been research done on the validity of self-report uh, data. 
and research. People are actually studying that. And that data actually turns out to be pretty accurate. So that when people you know, sign on for, for a research project, they volunteer, they're not forced to do this in any way. Yeah. Research shows that what they tell you is, is generally pretty honest. So I think that, that in terms of the integrity, uh, there, there could be a few people who are, you know, uh, stretching the truth. But it, research shows that if you sign up for a study like that, people tend to be pretty honest and responding. At least in terms of, uh, you know, over five-year period, that's going to uh, bear out. Someone who's lying yeah. about their drinking at year one, uh, if they're an alcoholic, <laughs> that's so going to be obvious at year five. Some people have criticized studies of saying some, some outrageous claims like they have a 90% dropout rate. They don't. I mean, you know, if you read, if you read the studies, one 16-year uh, one study was criticized by, by a psychiatrist by saying that it had a 93% dropout rate. It actually had a very small dropout rate, although over 16 years, some people died. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't exactly call them dropouts. They just they died. Oh, uh, well, I'll, I'll actually use the name Lance Dotus, and we'll get to him later. I'd love yeah. to moderate a debate between the two of you. I know The Fix did that recently. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you'd be up for round two, Rocky two, but I'm, I'm up for it. So uh, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, that's what he made the claim that the, the, the Moose study out of, out of Stanford had a 93% dropout rate. And it's just, you know, if you read the study, you just, you just can't find that anywhere. But, you know, again, up until now, people have been free to kind of like, you know, uh, just say anything they want. He, he uses a, another AA internal study uh, that uh, was also uh, prominent in um, Penn and Teller did a parody on Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, dissing it as a, a fraud, and they used this study that they thought showed a 5% success rate. They flashed this graph and then put it down without really looking at what the data means, and for starters, it went from 20 to 5, which meant only 20% of the people studied were actually new to AA. And right. of those 20%, in three months, uh, half of them were sticking around. And three months right. later, most of those were still here, right? So, Right, that's what, yeah. And I think Lance does the same thing about yeah. uh, the fact that some people say, well, it's true that about 50% of people who try AA a dropout after three months, within three months. They don't stick with it. Yeah. And then, so they use that to claim that, that it's not effective. But really, what, we, what you want to look for and what the research takes a look at is those people who stick with it. Uh, in fact, one long for 16-year study found that over 16 years, dropping out of AA at any point over 16 years was associated with going back to drinking. That doesn't mean necessarily alcoholic drinking, but it shows that not sticking with it, and any point dropping out is associated with drinking. So does that mean it doesn't work? No. The point of the book is, if you want it to work, this is what the research shows will work. So uh, again, you know, the, the, the research shows that any chronic medical condition, whether it's diabetes or hypertension, you name it, only about 50% of people stick with the treatment. Well, the other thing is that no one really knows what happened to those people? It, it, some people will get what they need from AA, carry on with their life, and right. uh, either you know improve their drinking or uh, completely be absent. The fact that they don't continue to go to meetings might be an AA success story more than someone who becomes right. meeting dependent. AA doesn't do research, so it doesn't follow. You know, we don't know. No exit surveys. Go back to AA a year later. Were they basically moderate drinkers to begin with who went to AA and they basically were able to moderate their drinking? Or did they just continue to be drink alcoholically even though they didn't go to AA? We don't really know. And it's very difficult it's very difficult to do that research because you'd have to find a group of people who are willing to be followers. Yeah, because AA doesn't do like membership drives. We're not trying to gain no. lifetime members. Just get what you need. You're welcome to stay, carry on. And again, because AA by tradition doesn't have it doesn't have a spokesperson, it doesn't have the you know, press secretary, yeah, it doesn't have a research division, so it just doesn't you know just not by tradition get involved in public controversy. It's also an easy target, frankly, because it is so big and popular. So you get a movement that's yeah. international in scope and has millions of members, and say you want to sell something different, 
AA is uh, AA is your target. Yeah, especially if you're late in your career, you haven't gotten maybe the attention you want. Just start uh, flogging whoever's number one. Like if I wanted to uh, start a cell phone company, I, I'd start bitching about Apple. <laughs> exactly. You know, and a lot of people who criticize that they really do. They have an alternative trying to to market or sell, but there's no good. There's no like clinical good clinical trials uh, to support them. Uh, Lance Dose, for example, uh, admits that there are no clinical trials supporting you on psychological treatment for substance abuse. I mean, and also the fact that it takes so so long. I mean, you know, it takes you know years and years. And so, you know, the theories are very different in any case about, you know, from, 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 from Doe's point of view and psychoanalytic point of view, powerless causes addiction. That's what he said. Powerless causes addiction. From our point of view, it's addiction that causes the powerlessness. Uh, right. The other way around. And it speaks in the past tense. We were powerless. Right. Certainly, we were trapped in a behavioral cycle. I, I don't feel that alcohol has this power over me when I walk into a bar, that's for sure. You talk to someone who's been in recovery for a few years. That's one group I'm interested in. It's hard to study is people who have long-term recovery. They are not at all powerless. They are some of the most empowered people you want to meet. Now, researchers tend to be even kinder on our outcomes than than we are. For instance, you have noted that even for recidivism inside AA, if people are actively engaged in AA, their relapses aren't as long and they aren't as severe as if they're not involved in AA. So that, by, from a doctor's point of view, would say you, you've been successful with AA. You've right. reduced the harm of alcoholism, where we right. as members might say, you know, I was sober 20 years, I had a slip, I'm starting off all over again, what did I do wrong? They certainly look at total abstinence. And one study that we probably won't think of, Project Macho was involved in, found that, that uh, those people who were randomly assigned to a 12-step treatment as opposed to say cognitive behavioral treatment uh, were twice as likely to be completely absent for, for the for, uh, year after treatment. Twice as likely. That doesn't mean they all were, but twice as likely. So when you say it doesn't work, well, wait a minute. Twice as likely to stay absent. Also, researchers measure not only total abstinence, but as you point out, Percent of percent of days absent. How many days have you been clean and sober? Uh, if you didn't have a slip, how much did you drink or use? And that matters because you know some of the studies show that people were you know drinking on an average of eight to ten drinks a day, for example. And then after you know being involved, you know, in treatment, whatever, they're they're down to maybe two or three drinks a week. Again, from AA's point of view, that's progress, not perfection, right? AA. Uh, nobody gets kicked out because they have a slip. Right. And research, some of the critics tend to think of it as if you're not totally abstinent, then AA has failed you. I don't think AA looks at it that way at all. I think it, it, it you know, except the fact that that uh, recovery is a process. And everyone I know who I've sent into 12 step fellowships, that's the way it's been for them. They've had some slips along the way, and then they get better and better at it. Yeah, I, I think we can learn from those who study us uh, to give ourselves a bit of a break, not be so rigid with how we view our, our path. Yeah, I think so. If people, if people in the fellowship think, you know, do it rigidly, that if you've had a, a slip in 10 years, you might do a failure. I, I think that that's a disservice for people. But I don't think that's typical. No. Yeah. Just another question about your relationship with uh, Hazelton Betty Ford. Being a lay person, you know, I have a little knowledge, which is a dangerous thing. So you read something like uh, Bad Pharma and you look at how, you know, some doctors make more money on speaking tours representing pharmaceutical companies than they do in their practice. And you you wonder about biases. You've, You've published a book by an organization that would benefit from a positive overview of the Minnesota model, the sort of 12-step model. Do you have any conflicts of interest in this relationship? I'm not employed by Hazel with any board. In fact, one of the first books I wrote was on adolescent substance abuse published by W.W. Norton, and then the book I published on 12-step facilitation, which was eventually republished by Hazelman, 
was first published by Sage Publications. And uh, frankly, you know, what happened is that it didn't do so well, and then Hazel didn't publish it. So they're, they're my publisher, but I don't, uh, I, I don't, I'm not employed by them. I did do my training at Hazel. Okay, so that my association with them is that back in another lifetime, it seems now, when I wanted to get training, I went out to Hazelden, and that's where I, I did my training. But no, I have, I'm not employed by Hazelden or Betty Ford, although, and I've never been to, to Betty Ford, but, you know, I could say that, that Hazelden certainly is a fine treatment center. Yeah. From a, a skeptic's point of view, you see the association yeah. and you wonder if it's an infomercial or a completely yeah, yeah, independent right. look at uh, sort of 12-step modality. I'm not, you know, employed by them, and I'm not, you know, promoting uh, Hazel and Betty Ford. And, you know, I, I think that any fellowship, personally, just you brought it up, any fellowship that promotes abstinence, whether it's AA, NA, uh, Women for Sobriety, Smart Recovery, I'm supportive of any of those, even secular organizations for society, which are for people who really are agnostic. You know, rehab's different. I mean, they differ a great deal. Some of them are like vacations, but they advertise, you know, hot tubs and, and uh, trail rides. <laughs> I don't see the, you know, hot tub therapy as, as related to, to recovery or necessarily trail rides in Arizona desert as related to recovery. If that's what you want to do, then you want to have, you have the money, fine. But I think, you know, recovery is a serious thing and it begins with rehab. Well, being Canadian, looking at our American cousins, we, we have a view of uh, the way everything is commercialized. Religion yeah. is turned into a commodity. Uh, treatment is turned into a, a commodity. I mean, you're way ahead of the curve in, in so many regards. Uh, I often wonder why that sort of self-help model is so embraced by the U.S., but in other countries, uh, cultures are just less reluctant to meet a room full of strangers and bear their soul. A lot of rehabs will, will claim uh, to be 12-step oriented. And I've visited some over, over time and did some consulting. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, some people just give a lip service, for example, and might say, well, I, I would recommend going to AA. <laughs> but they don't really integrate it into their into their uh, treatment program the way a place like Hazelwood does. And um, there are others like that that really are serious about the 12-step model. And they really do see rehab as the beginning of recovery and getting involved in, in a 12-step fellowship as what recovery really is about once you get out of rehab. Others, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, the debate with Lance Dovers, and if you, if you went on the fixed and sword, right on the right-hand column, there was a, there was an ad right there for one of those Malibu, you know, uh, rehabs. Yeah. Uh, and and you're right, they're they're out there advertising all the time. The issue I have is that people could not confuse rehab with recovery, thinking yeah. that if I go to this nice rehab, I'm going to be all better when I get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's. Uh... It's a it's a start of a process. It's sort of like a gym membership won't get you in shape, right? <laughs> or going right. for three months to a gym it isn't right. going to give you a lifetime of fitness. And, and, and you know that's interesting because you mentioned before about the dropouts for AA. Look at the dropout rates for for you know those kind those centers, those exercise skill centers. How many people they make a lot of money because people sign up and they go for the first two or three months and then they drop out. Uh, does that mean that they're that they're in good physical condition after three months and they don't have to go back? Uh, I don't think so. I think that that people who are serious about their physical health will continue doing, you know, um, exercising, you know, two or three times for a long time. Spending so much time with these uh, studies, and uh, your book, by the way, is going to be like a, a recommend for us because it, it really uh, corroborates a lot of what. Uh, most of us intuitively believe to be true when we're looking around. It's just we don't know the science, we don't know the data, but um, there were some surprises, but for the most part it was, yeah, that's that's kind of what I thought. There are a few surprises, but in a lot of ways it reaffirms what people who have been in recovery for years and years have known uh, based on their experience. The problem has been that there hasn't been time previously research that supports that. Right. And that's, and that's been the, that, that's been the impetus for the book. Uh, 
because for, for a long time, uh, people in the professional community were very skeptical of AA as you probably know. Yes. Especially people in the research community thought that it was either a cult or a blah blah religion, or there was no evidence that it worked. And in fact, if you go on the internet, you'll still find plenty of people who are skeptical and say that uh, AA or NA are uh, actually harmful to people, that they hurt more people than they help. And uh, up until now, there hasn't been a rebuttal to that because AA itself doesn't do research other than member surveys. And it never responds to criticism by, by tradition. So it's an easy target. Back in 1989, the Institute of Medicine here in the States issued a white paper that said that you know, AA was ubiquitous. But uh, no one had really studied it rigorously and really called for that for the next 20 years, including research I've been involved in, research that other researchers have been involved in. For about two decades or more of really good, rigorous research into the 12-step model, not only does AA work, not only does going to AA work, but how does it work? You know, you know, what are the dynamics of it, if you will? What role is, is the evidence about spirituality? What effects does it have on the brain? Uh, so there, there has been that research, but the problem has been is that it's been buried in peer-reviewed journals. The general public doesn't even have access to that unless you have paid subscription. Yeah. Uh, and even if you do, to be honest with you, if you don't have a PhD, you probably can't understand the dark stuff. So. I have a son in university, so I get access to some of that. But uh, understanding the statistical analysis uh, is uh, over my head. <laughs> right. Uh, what I did was uh, try to uh, translate that research into language that the average person could understand, or even professionals. You know, there are a lot of professionals there who recommend the 12-step uh, model, but they don't necessarily, you know, know, again, the research behind what they're recommending. I think it's very helpful for them to know that. If they're suggesting something that they can actually say, well, this is what research suggests works. Now, after looking through all of this uh, data, uh, where do you think the holes are? What, what, have you come across something where you said, I really wish someone studied this, or uh, we seem to be missing this part of the equation? There are areas where it needs to go into depth more, for example, in the area of spirituality. So the studies that I, that I was able to find and cite in the book are limited, although they do support the idea that people who uh, are involved in AA over time become more spiritual. Uh, they don't become interesting. They don't become more religious. They don't. They don't attend religious services more often. So much as they become spiritual. We don't know. You know some things about you know gender differences. So mm-hmm. you know uh, how it, how it, we know that it works for women, but how does it work for women versus men? Uh, but to be honest with you, some of this research is it, it's very costly. It's very time time consuming and it isn't necessarily easy to get the funding to do that. We're we were lucky for twenty years there was funding coming forward, you know, coming forth to do this. So uh, you know, I think that's you know, that's where the book is at. I'm certainly going to be staying, you know, on top of that and I'm I'm still involved in I'm involved hopefully with a study here at John Hopkins University if we get funded to adapt twelve step facilitation to heroin, you know, users. Uh, so there, there, there's a whole area. How does the 12-step model work for people who are opioid uh, addicts? Right. Uh, and that's a very serious problem. That's a much different addiction than alcohol. So that's kind of on the cutting edge. And hopefully, you know, if that kind of research gets funded, we'll find out. Uh, I'd love to see a study with uh, outright atheists versus believers, like. Uh, how many actually have a conversion experience, and how many of them just translate the AA model into the worldview they started with in the first place? Well, I think that's that's an excellent question. Like I said, the research showed that people who get involved in AA. Now, that the, the limitation of that research is that it didn't assess at the beginning how many were atheists or whatever. It just it just followed people who got involved in AA and found that at the outset it did find out, did discover that they were not necessarily more spiritual than the general public. But after a couple of years, what I mean by spiritual is that they adopted values like altruism, uh, the importance of honesty, the importance of reaching out to, to, to others, uh, admitting to one's you know, personal faults and forth. Those are kind of spiritual concepts. Uh, and it found that those people did become more spiritual. 
But that doesn't mean that that the person who was an atheist became suddenly a Christian, for example. Uh, as we know, Bill Wilson was a lifelong agnostic himself. Yeah. Yeah, you, you define uh, spirituality loosely as a belief in the reality and possibility of uh, epiphanies. Yes. Which can be as psychological as it is uh, mythical or mystical. Right. And that's, that's, that's true, because these epiphanies, uh, sometimes people find that they do come sort of like as a flash. I have, you know, talked to people who, who had that kind of epiphany. But a lot of times, you know, what people report is that, you know, they do have a, a spiritual awakening. And yeah. if you think about it, uh, what I write in the book is that when I'm trying to interpret some of these studies, mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, if you're in recovery for two to three five years, uh, you're a different person. You're a different person physically. You're a different person emotionally. Chances are that you might have had some cognitive deficits when you started out in, in recovery, and those are probably healed now two or three years later. Uh, your relationships are different. So why should it be um, surprising that people would report that they did a deep spiritual awakening when you know recovery changes them in so many ways? Right. Well, uh, I just uh, I would go on talking to you for another hour if I could. I, I just want to recommend to listeners that is this book. I've got an advanced copy. Is it uh, available now through Amazon or through bookstores? Yeah, it's available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNobleVN.com. It's available as a paperback, but also as you know, as a download. People want to download it onto their computer. And it's available in, you know, in brick-and-mortar uh, bookstores. You know, I'm still an advocate for brick-and-mortar bookstores. If you want to walk into them, you can find it there, too. If you're familiar with AA, it uh, really answers some uh, questions that you're bound to have if you are cerebral at all. If Ernie Kurtz uh, said it best. He said, uh, AA is a craft, not science. And yes, it is. Yeah, and rest in peace, I also really recommend it to people who are sponsors or considering being sponsors because sponsors are in a position of giving advice. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're not therapists, but they're in a position of giving advice. And I think sometimes it's helpful to know that the science behind the advice you're giving. Well, uh, that's true. I mean, you you do a, a great job of talking about how engagement makes the difference and sponsorship sponsoring or being a sponsor would certainly be a, a big part of that engagement. But uh, the reality is you can do statistics and it'll tell you what people do and it, it can't tell you why people do it. And have, have we gotten down to what works? Is it the steps? Is it the fellowship? Is it the better influences? Or is it the actual personal inventory? Uh, or is it finding willpower and developing the integrity to maintain it? What is it that gets people sober? Well, we don't know. We don't know so much about the, uh, the research into the personal inventory issue, which is very important. But we do know some things. We know that how many meetings you go to matters. Mm-hmm. We know that getting a sponsor, not only getting a sponsor, but the researchers are getting a sponsor early within the first three months makes a big difference as opposed to getting a sponsor later. We know that identifying with AA makes a difference. For example. Not just going to meetings, but considering yourself a member. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic, not just an alcoholic. Identifying with it makes a difference. You know, becoming more spiritual is all the time associated with recovery. Being in recovery over two years will help to 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 heal any cognitive deficits you may have had when you started recovery. So we know quite a bit actually thanks to research about how it works now. Right. Yeah. Uh, near the end of the book, you talk about the neurology of uh, alcoholism and and how right. the, the sort of recovery looks uh, on an MRI. <laughs> right. Again, I would uh, look forward to listening to your lecture and recommend that to anybody if they get a chance. And uh, if there's ever going to be uh, fisticuffs or uh, live debate with uh, you and Lance Dotis, that would be very entertaining. I'd love to be a part of that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You've been very generous. Thanks for your time, Joe. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, how was that? Sorry again about the sound quality. 
Sorry, Joe. Sorry, all of you. Uh, I hope it was worth it for you. You can find, if you work it, it works, the science behind 12-step recovery online, including the book page for Rebellion Dogs Publishing, or at your local bookstore. Support your local bookstore. Great idea. Maybe we'll have a chance to talk to Joe again under more favorable recording conditions. We hear expressions, right? If you get run over by a train, it's not the caboose that kills you. A pickle never becomes a cucumber again. Every slip starts with getting complacent about meetings. Meeting makers make it. It's nice to see if some of these beliefs about addiction and recovery are factual or folklore. I'm grateful for all those who care enough to take the time to study the plight of the addict and alcoholic. I don't agree with all of you, but I am grateful for all of you. These are questions, these are debates that ought to be had. After reading, if you work it, it works, I don't know if I'm any closer to knowing what keeps me sober. Is it the meetings I attend, the steps I've taken, the people I know, the love in the rooms, the fickle kindness of some unseen force of the universe? What sustains my recovery? I know people who are success stories who don't work the steps or who don't go to meetings. Some people credit a creative power of the universe for their recovery and others think such magical thinking is as dangerous to their sobriety as the delusion that one day they can drink socially again. Oh, the mystery continues and the adventure continues. There seems to be an exception to every rule and a book that confirms every bias. But one thing's for sure, I feel better for having read this book by Joe Nowinski. If you pick it up, I, I'd love to hear how you feel about it. Were there surprises? Did it confirm what you believed? What, did it go against your experience? Just let us know. We're going out with a song by Halifax songwriter Joel Plaskett. This song is from his 2015 CD. It's called Park Avenue Sobriety Test, both the record and the song. Available on iTunes, available from record retailers, or go to joeplaskett.com. J-O-E-L-P-L-A-S-K-E-T-T. -T. It's not a mantra for sobriety. It's just a cool song. Thanks for joining us on Rebellion Dogs Radio. This has been Episode 12. For links to other shows, for books, for upcoming events, resources, links to our social media pages, search Rebellion Dogs Publishing in your browser. A lot of our future shows are going to be based on your feedback, so please don't be shy. This is the Park Avenue Sobriety Test. It's a kick in the teeth. It's the hornet's nest. It's the Park Avenue Sobriety Test. It's the cold, hard light of day. It's the pain in your heart, it's the look in your eyes All of your friends are dropping like flies It's the hole in the sky when a young man dies You just want to go to sleep And when you finally sleep, you imagine a world It's a beautiful world filled with beautiful girls And the girls in your world, the one you imagine Like who the fuck will pay our rent? Some people are 
Cause Frank's not a woman's name Last call has been called And now Frank's closing down Here out on the street And there's no one around And it's raining outside And whiskey you drown And now you're walking across A bridge And you're sobering up And you get to the park And it's sketchy as hell Thanks again. Maybe see you in the rooms. We'll see you online for sure. Hi, Gavin, you. <laughs> it's like a Telly Savalas. <laughs> Who loves your baby? Last Muppets. Last Muppets. <laughs> you person, look at that.